If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Joel. We started a new series last week on the minor prophets, and uh, we talked about this last week, that um, that these books are kind of books that sometimes get skipped over because of the fact that they're kind of obscure, they, they have strange names, they're towards the end of the Old Testament, um, and that, that they always, sometimes they have messages that are hard to understand or they're strange for us to read. But I told you last week that they're not called minor prophets because they are unimportant. They're called minor because they're short, which to be honest is good because they're like, get in, state their case, wrap up and get out. And some of you this week have said, Pastor, I wish your sermons were more minor, um, which is a fair point, all right? Um, there are 12 books, they're short, but they are really important because they describe how life in Israel was wrong, what they could do about it, and how God calls us back to be restored by him. And Joel is the second book in the book of the Minor Prophets. Now, here's the thing about Joel. We don't really know a lot about the prophet Joel. We know a lot. We knew quite a bit about the prophet Jonah we talked about for four weeks. We knew a little bit more uh, than about Hosea than we do Joel. We don't know much about Joel at all, mainly because he just gives us a very short introduction. Joel chapter 1 just gives us a very short introduction. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. That's all it says. That's all it will say. That's all we know. We don't even know what time Joel wrote in. We're not sure who the kings were at the time. We're not sure what was going on in Israel. But what we do know is, we're not even sure if he was in Israel or Judah because he kind of references both. What we do know is something had gone terribly wrong. Now, we know from history they had some terrible leaders, whichever place he was in, that they suffered through national plagues, one of which we'll talk about in a moment, that there was civil unrest, economic problems, that in today's kind of understanding their stock market was down, foreign trade was low, national confidence was almost non-existent, and everyone in the country knew they were going in the wrong direction, and this national tragedy confirmed it. What Joel's going to write to them about and say, listen, you're worried about one thing when the reality of what's wrong is something else entirely. The book is short. It's only three chapters. We'll talk about parts of each of those chapters. And I want us to think about our own lives in light of it. I do encourage you, if you've got a Bible, to open it with me or to take an app out. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look in front of you because I'm going to have you turn to two or three different places in the book. Some of them will be on the screen. Not all of them will be on the screen. And so I want us to journey through this book together. Joel chapter 1, again, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? He said, it's unprecedented. Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. So Joel's going to talk to them about something they all would have been aware of. They all knew what had happened. They all knew what was going on. It's not a surprise to them, but he's saying it's a monumental moment. It's kind of a strange thing for us to talk about because none of us in this room have ever experienced what he's about to describe. Verse 4 says this. What the devouring locust has left... The swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. What the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Boy, doesn't that bless your soul there, right? So here's what's going on. They had encountered a locust plague. Now, this is what a locust 
looks like. We got a picture of it there. Um, what does it look like? A grasshopper. And here's what I want you to know. Locust is a type of grasshopper right there, right? And so sometimes locusts get confused with cicadas. They're a little different. They're not the same kind of animal. Cicadas are more about noise. Locusts here, which are absolutely fascinating animals when you look at them up close, like in a picture, not like, you know, actually holding one, but like in a picture or on a screen like this, they have amazing features and they are grasshopper-like. But here's the thing. At certain times, nobody knows why, most of the time they have kind of solitary lives, But for some reason, at certain points in history, locusts have decided that they wanted to swarm millions of them. Now, this is a picture. Those look like birds. Those are locusts. Millions, literally billions in the area. Trillions have even been recorded in certain swarms. And when they swarm, what they do is fascinating. We have a record of something that happened in 1915 in an area around where Joel would have been writing that is similar to what had happened to Israel here. They said in March of 1915, swarms of locusts just appeared in the sky like this. Imagine one day you're walking outside. Y'all know how the cicadas come. Y'all know, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Cicadas. Like you just walk out one day and you're like, what's that noise? And then it's there for like a month, right? So imagine instead of just hearing it, you walked outside and that was there. So they just appeared out of nowhere, came from the north. And what they do is they fly into an area in swarms, they land on the ground, and then they lay eggs. They carve out a little piece of ground, and the way they lay eggs is really kind of creepy. It's almost like a sci-fi look. It's a neatly formed in cones that are one inch long and as thick as pencil, and they say that these holes are everywhere when the swarm hits, and that they will lay 70,000 eggs in a single square yard of soil. That's a lot, all right? And these patches will cover the ground For miles and miles. Within a few weeks, these young locusts hatch, resembling large ants. They can't fly yet. So they just crawl upon the ground. And whatever they come upon, they eat. A few weeks later, they develop the ability to jump, which I'm sure makes it really exciting, right? Their range got higher, so they're able to scour trees and vines. A few weeks later, they develop wings, and they swarm over the area, and they devour anything that they haven't eaten yet to that point. They say the sound of the swarms are terrifying. Within a few days, witnesses said there was literally nothing left living plant-wise. They even ate the bark off the trees, leaving behind a wasteland that can be described today from what we've seen like a nuclear holocaust has happened. Then they get desperate for food. They swarm into people's houses, eating the food in people's houses, the clothes, the fabric, and the wood of the houses. They are like middle school boys at a pizza party. They leave nothing behind. So when Joel says, (laughs) the young locusts are eating, the destroying locusts are eating, the devouring locusts are eating, the swarming locusts are eating, What he means is that they have just experienced a tragedy beyond anything they could imagine. Now, for us, that would be terrible to have all of that happen, and it would impact us for sure. But when you are a country that depends for your livelihood on crops and what you grow, their entire economy was wiped out. 
And the people around there are asking the question, why? And what do we do about this? And why is this going on? What is happening? And Joel, as the messenger of God, is going to deliver the message to them. He's going to talk to them about a concept that is throughout the Old Testament, that is throughout the prophets especially, and is mentioned five times in the book of Joel. It's the concept of the day of the Lord. He's going to talk about the day of the Lord coming. Other prophets talk about the day of the Lord coming. As we walk through the minor prophets over the rest of this summer, we're going to see time and time again that these prophets call out the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Here comes the day of the Lord. Joel will mention it five times. For instance, he mentions it in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. He mentions it four other times. You don't have to turn there, but it's in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 31, chapter 3, verse 14. And throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord is mentioned again and again by the prophets. And here's the way they talk about it. They talk about it in three tenses or three moments. They talk about the immediate day of the Lord, the imminent day of the Lord, and the ultimate day of the Lord. Now let me break all that down, all right? So for Joel, he says... The immediate day of the Lord is a judgment from God on our nation because of our sin, and we have seen it in the locusts that have devoured our crops. But Joel tells them, if you don't shape up, if you don't return to the Lord, if you don't go back to Him, there is an army approaching that will destroy us all. He describes this army in ways that describe it as an army like you haven't seen before. It says before it goes fire and after it comes fire. That if you look before it, it is a beautiful land. But once that army arrives, the fire of that army destroys it all. And the fire on the back end cleans up anything that is not. And we don't know for sure which country he's talking about. But in that day and time, there were three or four armies that could have been the one they describes, which is the greatest the earth had ever seen and would come through them and destroy them without any resistance. And he says, if you don't turn from your wicked ways, if you don't turn back to the Lord, if you don't go back to him, then the imminent or the coming day of the Lord will happen. But then he talks about an ultimate day of the Lord. And he says there will come a day when God will judge all people all over the earth. And destruction will come on those who refuse to repent. He describes it in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, when he says, Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle, because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes, because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow, because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. He says, listen, there's coming a day when I will come in judgment. And when I come in judgment, I am going to swing the sickle. And it is going to destroy those who have refused to repent. You see, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord really has Two meanings. First of all, primarily it is used to describe a day of destruction for those that are resistant to God. And that's what it's describing here for Joel. He says, listen, you're concerned about this locust. You're concerned about the crops. You're wondering why they came to us. He says, you should be concerned about the sin in your own life because this is the first step in a three-step process of judgment that is coming to us if we do not repent. 
If we don't repent, this will seem minor compared to the army that is coming. And the army that will be used by God to destroy us will be mightier than anything we've ever seen. And if we don't repent then, there is coming a day, an ultimate day, when the God of the universe himself will come and will judge. And none of us want to be on the wrong side of God when that day comes. And so the prophet, he comes and he says, listen, Israel, listen, God is giving us a wake up call. In fact, in chapter one, verse four, he looks at the people and he says, drunkards, wake up. And he's not just talking about people that have had too much to drink. He's talking about people that don't realize the sin in the lives of the nation, that don't realize how far away they are from God, that have got comfortable in who they are and what they're doing. And he says, wake up or destruction is coming. You know, what's fascinating to me about this period of Israel's history is that it wasn't the king who God had appointed when he had appointed a king and said, fine, you can have a king. The king was supposed to keep the people in line with what God's commands were. And the kings over and over again refused to do that. If you look at the list of kings in either the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, it is not a who's who of great kings. The northern kingdom had no good kings. I mean, none. All of them were bad and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The southern kingdom had a few, a few. And it went from good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And then it started to be three or four bad ones. And then they were even worse. And then they were, you don't even want to talk about what they did. And so the leaders that were supposed to lead them in the way that they should go weren't. Even the priests are called out again and again by the prophets. And so the only people in the life of Israel that were telling them that they needed to repent, that they needed to come back to the Lord, that they needed to surrender their lives to the Christ, to the God of the universe, were the prophets called by God to speak God's truth. And Joel says, you're all concerned about your crops. You should be concerned about your soul. Joel uses this locust plague as both an illustration of their sin as well as a warning of God's future judgment on their sin. So I want to take just a couple of minutes, just a few moments here today, and say, how does that apply to us? I mean, none of us, I don't think we're going to walk out this afternoon and there's a locust plague. Okay? I haven't seen it on the news, haven't seen it reported anywhere. Maybe it all happens, but that's not what we're dealing with. So what is the application? What is Joel, what would he say to us? And I think there are two aspects of what's going on here that we can relate to with that. First of all, we need to understand that just like the locust plague, the devastating power of sin in our lives leads to total, gradually destroying everything in its path. You see, the laws that God gave us are life-giving They are for us. His commandments and His rules in our lives give us the best possible way to live. We see this illustrated in the creation account. When God created the earth, it began as dark and shapeless and chaotic. Genesis 1-2 says that God spoke and the shapeless, dark, chaotic mass became life and beauty and order. And that's what God's word does for us, that when we hear his word, when we invest ourselves in his word, when we understand his word, when we understand his commands, when we understand what he's calling us to do, it gives us life to live. It organizes us, brings order to our chaos. Sin, by contrast, unravels creation and plunges our lives back into that darkness. God's judgments in Scripture often illustrate that. We saw it in the ten plagues. Those weren't magic tricks, but they were the systematic reversal of creation. 
He wasn't just showing off his power, although that's part of it. He wasn't just encountering the Egyptian gods that they worshipped and showing his superiority over them, although that's part of it. He was also showing the unraveling of nature that happens when we refuse to do what God has called us to do. Specifically, in that instance, it was Pharaoh who wouldn't release God's people. We see that picture here with locusts again. What is good is crops growing, it's health, it's life. And what we see in these locusts, the judgment on their sin, is that it destroys and throws it back into darkness and barrenness. And sin in our own lives, if we allow it to go unchecked, will take us from a place of order into a place of chaos, from a place of light into a place of darkness. And most of the time, we are completely unaware of the path that sin is taking us down and leading us to a place of destruction. Maybe you've heard this illustration before, but I thought about um, the ways that Eskimos catch wolves or kill wolves in Alaska. They don't go out and hunt them. What they do is they take a knife They take that knife and then they take blood from an animal and they coat that knife with the blood and let it freeze. And then they coat the knife with another layer of blood and let it freeze. They do that several times and then they go stick the knife in the snow. Blade up. Wolf smells it, tracks it, gets to the knife and begins to lick the frozen blood and becomes so obsessed with the blood that is there, that before long he can't control himself and he doesn't even realize when he has gone from licking the frozen blood to licking the sharpened blade. And his own blood is what he is now tasting in his mouth. And eventually he loses enough that he dies. Now listen, there is not a more apt description of what sin can do to you. Something like pornography or simple flirtation or doing things your own way or cutting corners here or a little falsified record there, a little white lie, a little bit of gossip. And before long, you are walking down a path of destruction. Joel says, the locusts are a reminder from God of the seriousness of our own sin and the path we are walking. But it's also a warning that worse judgment is coming. Joel says that if the Israel does not wake up, God is going to send armies of Babylon into, or into Israel like a horde of locusts. Listen to how Joel prophesies about the Babylonian invasion or, or the invasion from the Ninevites or the invasion from other countries that could be coming. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. It has laid waste to my vineyard and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. He says that the land is like the Garden of Eden before them. It's a perfect place before them. And behind them it is a desperate wilderness and nothing escapes them. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of mountains like the crackling of a flame devouring the stubble. He says, if you don't get right, your sin is going to lead you down a path, lead this country down a path where I'm going to bring judgment through other nations. 
What we see in this is an understanding that God allows us to travel down a path in our own sin sometimes that leads to punishment and destruction. And sometimes he steps into that and he will encounter us and say, listen, because of your own sin, I'm going to increase the judgment in your life. Let me just say that for most of us in this room, there's this discussion in theological circles of the active and passive will of God, that the passive will of God is like it says in Romans chapter 1, that he turns us over to ourselves, so he just lets us keep going down the path of sin that we're on, and we reap the destruction that comes from that. But sometimes God actively steps in and says, I'm going to show you that you are on this path, and I want to remind you of what's coming. A lot of times the active wrath of God is him just intensifying what we have already gotten ourselves into. For instance, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God comes to him. He eventually banishes them from the garden. But what's interesting is he banished them from his presence. They had already hidden from his presence because of their own consequences from sin. We mentioned the Pharaoh and the story of the plagues. It says that God hardened his heart, but he had already, it tells us in Scripture, hardened his own heart several times, and God finally said, then I'll let you see the full ramifications of your sin. In fact, when Jesus describes hell itself, that place that people go that do not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, he shows it to be an extension of of our passive, of God's passive wrath as we choose sin to walk away from God. For instance, he uses phrases that are difficult for us to understand today. He says the worm that does not die. It's an image of a conscience continually being hidden away by guilt and regret. He talks about outer darkness. That means the total absence of God and all of his goodness. He talks about the gnashing of teeth. It was a Jewish image for self-condemnation, self-loathing, and says for eternity you will be considerably talking about how bad you have been. He talks about fire. The agony of God's displeasure. C.S. Lewis is the one who said that in the end, we either say to God, thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that the problem that we have when we think about the passive wrath of God or our own sin is we don't imagine the path down in which it will take us. He said it's like a cancer. It never stops growing. And he says the thing that makes hell, hell, is that we live forever. And whatever it is in our lives that we have sin growing like cancer will grow in intensity forever. And so, so there are some things that may not be that bad that if you have them today you have to work out. But can you imagine what it is like for a temper or jealousy to grow unabated in you for a million years? And Lewis says hell is precisely the term for what that would be. So here's what you have to understand from Joel's perspective, from the prophet's perspective, and from God. Anytime that God brings punishment into our lives for sin that we deserve, and it causes us to remember how egregious or bad our sin is, and to turn from that sin, that his punishment is an extension of God's mercy. That when he stops us from fully understanding the fullness of our sin, that God's judgment in the life of a believer is an expression of his mercy. 
You know, last week we talked about the extreme love of God and the most radical example in Hosea where God shows us his love through a man who married an unfaithful woman who was perpetually unfaithful and he continually loved her. And we understand that about God. But what we also understand is that when he judges us, when he punishes us, when he allows sin to show, to show its course, before it gets to the full extent of it, he is in mercy showing us that we don't have to go there. That he is giving us an opportunity to repent. And so in your life, when it seems like you just can't get ahead, you just can't get over that hump, you just can't, and you're trying with all your might, but calamity happens or disappointment happens or things fall around you or life crumbles around you, we need to stop and ask the question, Is God trying to get my attention? Is God trying to wake me up? And if that's the case, no new strategy is going to get you over the hump. No new tactic. No new effort. Because if the issue is your soul, then the only way that gets repaired is to repair your relationship with the Lord. It's not a horizontal problem. It's a vertical one. And here's the bad news, good news. God's got more locusts than we could ever imagine to send our way. Sometimes God, to bring us to a place where we can come back to Him, has to bring us to the end of ourselves. And I believe that there are some in this room today where God has been trying to reach out to you, call out to you for years, and you're just not ready to give that full amount of attention that you need to. Because you see, when God comes to us, He doesn't come to just put some paint on us. He comes to completely change our lives. And there are a lot of people that come to church and they just want to God to fix whatever's going on in their life right now. Put a new coat of paint on there. Get a little scrub away a little bit of the rust. Just make it look pretty for a moment. But God's not in the business of helping us polish up the old. God's in the business of making us new. So the question is, When we realize that's going on, how do we respond? Joel chapter 2 verse 12 says this. Even now, in spite of all of that, God says, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your heart, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. He looks at the people, Joel does, and he says, listen, this is what's coming. This is what's happened. The locusts have destroyed, have devoured. And I'm going to tell you, that's partly because of our falling away from the Lord. I can tell you what's coming. What's coming is that God is sending a nation to come to us that will destroy us. But even now, If you will fast and weep and mourn and rend your heart, tear your hearts and not just your clothes and return to the Lord your God. The thing to notice here is the kind of repentance he's calling for. It goes out of love. It's all your heart, fasting, weeping, tearing your hearts, not your garments. He's describing repentance that comes from a broken heart. Not just a will that's changed. This is somebody that is heartbroken over their sin, heartbroken over the distance that has come between them and the Lord, and is ready to respond. Because that's the only kind of repentance that really 
works. What I've learned about myself, what I've seen in almost 20 years of pastoring is this, that what bothers me oftentimes, what I oftentimes want is God just to to take the painful circumstance away or or that I feel guilty or ashamed. I just want that to go away. And that when that is the cause, when that is the impetus behind my change, when that is the reason that I'm changing, it's just because I want the circumstances to change or I want this painful guilt to go away, that what I find is that my commitments are often short-lived and I end up living my life trying to be like somebody that wants to keep a balloon in the air. I knock it up and it keeps coming down. I knock it up and it keeps coming down. I make a commitment to follow the Lord. I'm going to give up this, Lord. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this more. I'm going to go this way more. And I just feel like I'm juggling things all around. That change is not what God wants from us. It's not to get the painful circumstance away. It's not to take care of this situation or this just the guilt. What he wants from us is a heart that is turned to him. In those areas of my life where I've been broken on how I have hurt God and how my life has distanced itself from him, those are the areas when I come back to him that real change happens. And I think about David in Psalm 51 when he comes to the Lord. This is after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he has had her husband killed. And he has spent a year trying to cover it up. And Nathan comes to him, the prophet, and he says to him, you are the man. You are the one that has done this. And David goes to the Lord in Psalm 51. And even though he has hurt many people, even though he has seen the son that was born out of that relationship die, even though he has seen his family begin to crumble from within because of the actions that he has committed, he says to the Lord against you and you alone have I sinned because it is most important that we understand that our sin first and foremost is a violation of God's law and God's love and God's will for our lives and when we understand that it breaks our heart because of our distance from him and when we repent in that way God listens so he talks about fasting he talks about rending our hearts he talks about giving us back weeping and mourning It comes to a place where we're like, it's not okay. God's presence and powers flows through repentance that grows out of love for Him. And you say, well, what if I've lost that? What if I don't have that anymore? What if I've distanced myself from that? And you go back to Hosea. You remember, we love God because He first loved us. And so when we come back to Him, the question becomes, then how will God respond? And I love this. This is the very next verse. The very next verse tells us exactly how God will respond. It says that when we come back, when we rend our hearts and return to the Lord, it says, He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and He relents from sending disaster. Who knows? By the way, that phrase there, who knows, that's not a question of maybe or possibly. That's a question of depending on and based upon the characteristic of who God is. We know he will turn and relent and leave the blessing behind him so you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. There are two things in there that I think are just astounding. First of all, we, we don't even have time today to talk about all of that picture of God. It's the picture the Old Testament gives us again and again, that he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. But we don't have time to talk about that in detail today. But what I love down at the NDC says, when he hears you, when you come to him, when you come with that kind of attitude, when you come with that kind of spirit, God will, first of all, turn and relent. That's his mercy. He will not give you what you deserve. He will not take from you what you deserve deserve to have taken from you it says that he will give you mercy but more than that he will leave a blessing that's his grace that is unwarranted unmerited favor that god bestows upon our lives 
It says when we come to him and repent, God will not only save us from the wrath that is coming, he will bless us with what we don't even deserve. So if you break into my house and I catch you in the act of stealing something from my house and I say I'm not going to call the cops, that's mercy. If I then say to you, and I can see you're really down on your luck, so I'm going to write you a $10,000 check and give it to you. Now you'd be disappointed when it bounced, but when I give it to you, that's grace. It's something you don't deserve. See, God not only wants to shield you from his wrath, he wants to return blessing and prosperity. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. You will be satiated, that is completely filled, to the point that you can't have any more with them. And I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. He's going to pour out blessings on you. Now that doesn't always happen here and now. Sometimes that's in the future. Sometimes that's in eternity. But God will bless you and he will restore for you. In fact, he goes beyond that. He goes beyond saying you even be satisfied. Look at what it says in verse 25 and following. This is amazing. He says, I will drive out the northern from you, banish him from dry and desolate land, his front rakes into the Dead Sea, his rear guard into the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will rise, his rotten smell will rise, for he has done astonishing things. He says, I'm going to protect you. So it's not just that I'm going to, I'm going to give you some more food back, I'm going to take care of that. He says, I'm going to protect you from those evil people that are coming, and they will not have a chance against you. So I'm going to protect you in the future. And then he goes on to say this. Is that it, or has we got another? Here he is. I, look at this, will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate. The young locust, the destroying locust, the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you, I sent the locust. He says, I'm going to repay you for everything that they've done. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. Then he says this in verse 28, which I think is fascinating, especially because of the day we're celebrating. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. Now, those of you that, that know your Bible, okay, does anybody know where that verse is quoted? Give you, give you a hint. New Testament. Okay. Another hint. Amory told you what today we celebrate as Christians, right? Does anybody know where it is now? Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up. After, remember, they all go, Are y'all drunk? Do y'all remember that? Y'all don't remember that. All right, so in Acts chapter 1, Spirit of God descends upon them. They go out and they act crazy. They start telling the great things about God. They start praising Him. Everybody hears them in their own language, and they're like, are these people drunk? And Peter gets up and says, we're not drunk. It's just 9 in the morning. That's not the Baptist answer, but that's the answer, all right? And then he begins to talk to him, and he says, because don't you remember it was prophesied that in the last days God would pour His Spirit out on all people? And sons would prophesy and daughters. So this is prophesying the day that the Spirit of God would pour out and that we would be His messengers. It's not just that He's going to restore our good fortune. It's not just that He's going to give us more than we deserve. He's going to allow us to be part of the part that gives the news of the good news of God to the people on this earth. 
Peter says this points to the empowerment of the Spirit and the church for mission. You remember in Acts, it says that you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And when that power from the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will do what? It's Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. That's why the Holy Spirit is in you. Yes, it brings comfort. Yes, it brings peace. Yes, it shows us that where we have fallen away from God. Yes, it gives us an understanding of conviction of sin. But primarily the Holy Spirit is within you to be a witness to the goodness of God in your life. And you want to go tell everybody about it. It's like when you fall in love, you want everybody to know. When your team wins a championship, you want everybody to know. Uh, You know, I've never seen somebody that didn't redo their house. They wanted to have people over to show what they did in their house. Like, you want people to know about it. And when God restores you, you want to be his witnesses and tell everybody. God doesn't restore us and revive us just so you'll be better. He wants witnesses to tell people about it. And he says to Joel... That's going to be what happens. And then there's another verse that's quoted in Scripture. Verse 32. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the survivors that the Lord calls. The question really becomes, is that what we want in our lives? The power, the blessing, the grace the mercy, the ability to change the world. If that's what we want, then we have to come to a place where we return to the Lord. And it always starts with an understanding that our sin is the problem. Not the locust, not the invading armies, not whatever it is that's happening in your life. Our sin is the issue. You just have to ask the question, how badly do we want the presence of God in our lives? One of the greatest revivals that ever happened in church history is the Korean church in the early 20th century. And its beginning always gets traced back to one event. The Korean church was small, just a few hundred believers in the entire country. And at one prayer service, one of the Korean church leaders, a guy named Mr. Kang, stood up trembling and said in barely more than a whisper, I have something to confess. I have for weeks harbored an intense hatred in my heart for Mr. Lee, our friend and missionary, And I confess before God and before you, and I repent. And the room fell silent. This man just publicly admitting to hating the guy that was hosting this event. Every eye in the place turned to Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee was taken back, could not hide his own surprise. It was completely unknown. But then he answered, Mr. Kang, I forgive you. They said what followed in that room was a sense of mental anguish over their sins and how far they had walked from the Lord. Church members began to pray, to confess hidden sins, to weep over them and pray for forgiveness. The meeting, which was scheduled for a few hours, stretched until 5 o'clock in the morning. It was the beginning of a similar set of events that led to a massive outpouring of God's Spirit. And in year one of the revival, 50,000 Koreans come to Christ in a community that had a few hundred in the whole country. The local college campus, Pyongyang, where it started, saw 90% of the students in the college come to faith in Christ. Can you imagine if 90% of the students at the University of Tennessee came to Christ? Or Vanderbilt University or the University of Memphis? Today, 
South Korea is one of the most thriving missionary sending hubs in the world. In fact, I think South Korea is one of, it sends more missionaries to the United States than we send there for sure. And more missionaries than any other country come to the United States from South Korea. And it all went back to a place when they understood their sin, they took it seriously, and they hungered for God. It's what every prophet in the Old Testament calls us to do. And my challenge to you, and my challenge to you every week is going to be, let us return to the Lord and to His heart. Let's pray together.